Welcome to episode number 11 of the Brilliant Podcast. This story has been told a thousand million times, and the ubiquity of it is what I would call a great tragedy. A tragedy because of the consequences it has on our imagination and our capacity to be more. The brilliant attempts to tell stories about the brilliant ones, the ones who live human-sized lives that may seem larger than life, the ones who dream beyond recognition, the ones who are satisfied not answering every question that critics ask, and just living with the contradictions. This is an attempt to tell different kinds of stories, ones with complex moral plays, ones that aren't so clearly stories, and the ones that are of human size. Our motivation to tell these tales is a desire to see a proliferation of different stories, and not just the simple morality plays of popular culture, but the inverted but otherwise identical stories of the radical milieu. I am your host, Aragorn, joined by co-host Thelma. And in the background, our sound engineer is doing a great job, especially with his song choices, Roy Burton. <laughs> and now on to listener feedback. Yeah, so we've been getting a lot of listener feedback, which has been really nice for us. It's been really interesting to hear people's responses, and we have been getting asked some really good questions, so I'm thinking that responding to listener feedback is going to become more and more a regular part of the show. And someone asked a long, thoughtful question that I'm going to summarize about anarchism in the Midwest, and they referenced the fact that both Aragorn and I are from the Midwest, I uh, grew up in Ohio. I spent most of my life near Cleveland, Ohio. And this person was asking a few things. What do we think about the anarchism in the Midwest historically, currently? What its potential is? What did we do there? What do we think we could have done differently? They pointed out that from things I've said on the show that I had an isolated experience, but that is a beginning to a critique, thinking back. How could I not have been so isolated? They asked on Aragorn, they asked of Aragorn during one of his trips there that um, this person said to them that it was fine that comrades leave and go to the coasts as long as they come back. They emphasized they didn't mean this permanently, but asked what would it look like if people who have migrated to the coasts came back for Midwest anarchist events? What would conversations look like? What events would they come back for? And they point out that my experience is not unique, that anarchists in the Midwest are often isolated, largely from each other, and that that can lead to anarchists participating in what we might derogatorily call activism. And they talk about how there's an absence of scenes 
or very weak scenes, and that lends itself to um, not having such strong age lines, not such divisiveness, but then you also don't have the same kind of ability to pull people together. And they talk about how the cost of living is much cheaper relative to the coasts, and within two hours there are over 600 acres of self-identified anarchist land projects. Um, the cities are relatively small, populations poor, the cultures tend toward being rural, subcultures are absent or have fled. And so I'm going to give my response and then I think Aragorn will do the same. And so yeah, I was definitely isolated at the time that I was in the Midwest and I think a lot of that was sort of self-imposed in the sense that I, at that time, I think I've mentioned in the past, I only really knew one person well who called himself an anarchist, and that was mostly us learning about things together, reading things and talking about them. And I think a lot of that had to do with college culture and internet culture, and so at that time I was in college, I was unhappy about being there, I was basically doing it through familial pressure because I was the first generation to go to college and there was this expectation that I was going to have a certain kind of life, sort of American dream, I think, you know, parents worked, sent the kids to school, assumed that they're going to raise them to a higher plane of existence. And so I spent a lot of time on the internet reading about anarchism. And so you have a sort of power of the internet phenomenon there, I think, in that it got me informed, but also made anarchism this very unreal thing. That was this thing that other people did that I was reading about. And a lot of it was just this kind of escapism of spending a lot of time reading about these things. Um, and I was, I did campus activism, but it was the most kind of boring campus activist thing. It had nothing to do with anarchism, really. And I remember looking for anarchist meetups online in Cleveland, which was the closest, biggest city. I couldn't find any. Most of the uh, anarchist groups in the area, they hadn't updated their websites in years, so I didn't even know if these people were still doing things. And it was kind of funny, actually. I saw that Cleveland had its first anarchist book fair in 2014, and those several years after I'd left, so I guess I would say a lot of it was, as I said, self-imposed and this sort of internet unreality thing, but it also f didn't feel like there were projects I could plug into, um, and I think it was just, uh, you know, not having grown up in Cleveland proper, I just wasn't connected to the place at all, I didn't know anyone, um, Maybe you want to jump in here, and then I'll make some comments about the other questions. I was at the first annual yeah, meetup yeah, book fair, yeah. and um, uh, I guess whatever events have happened that call themselves anarchist in the past uh, ten years, uh, mostly I've been there um, for those events. Uh, if you wanted uh, a clear recommendation as to how to do how to do a big event that people would come to, you would have to throw it in something in a town, something like St. Louis. Um, and call it a book fair, call it whatever you want, but that is a central enough location that basically within six hours you have almost the entire East Coast right. and uh, the, the Great Lakes and um, northern states and all the south could come to a place like Kansas City or St. Louis. So that would be my recommendation on that front. Um, while I say I'm a Midwesterner, and I am, in point of fact, I left the Midwest uh, so long ago that many of our listeners will not have been alive. I moved, sort of initially, I moved away in 1987. Um, and so that that means that my Midwesternness is sort of far away. I, I go back all the time, at least once a year. 
and I'm originally from Michigan. And the town that I grew up in, which is a small town called Grand Rapids, actually has, in fact, an anarchist scene, quote, but in very small letters, um, today. And um, and so I go back and I sort of appreciate that, and um, uh, especially appreciate the fact that it's a small town that's incredibly conservative. Um, yeah, and so mostly I would say that the the aspects that um, Bellamy hasn't mentioned that I think are important is the fact that anarchism, unlike centralized political perspectives, requires a certain DIY ethic, um, rather than sort of you meeting up with like-minded people and them giving you a mission, uh, envelopes to stuff or whatever. Uh, the first sort of piece of information you're given or should be given when you when you meet someone who's an established part of something is they tell you, figure out what you want to do and do it, whether yeah. it exists or not. Yeah, I think there was an absence of even just that kind of contact. Like I, I think what I w- would have loved that was not present was... Um, some kind of reading group or discussion group and that's what I was looking for because I had these ideas but had no context I would have loved to have talked to older people who had been sitting with the ideas for a long time to, to say you know what what does it mean to try to make a life with these things and even if it were just to hear the people saying things like well you have to figure that out yourself because at, you know at this time I'm talking about being 19 and pretty clueless and um, you never having lived outside of suburban Ohio. Yeah, again, this is something that a lot of anarchism that currently exists comes out of punk rock and and a core value in North American punk rock culture is that DIY ethic and the fact that there are anarchists who don't pass through that is sort of still a puzzle to me. And, um, (laughs) um, but it's something that you can, like the DIY thing when you, when you sort of unshackle yourself from the expectations of family and friends, and really approach the DIY ethic at the right time and age or whatever. Very young people throw shows. Sure. Very young people put out magazines. Sure. Or at least they used to. Now they just uh, go to WordPress and start a blog and update it three times and never do it again. But um, but there was something back in the day of the, of the DIY ethic that, I guess for me personally, has driven almost all decisions I've made. Yeah, and the... the um the listener who wrote us talked about the expensiveness of of the coast. I think that's totally a thing, but I also think um, when you're in urban areas like the Bay, it, it is easier in some ways to survive in the cracks. There's more to scavenge on than there is in the Midwest. So Less of a need for DIY, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And you also have the extreme car culture of Ohio where it's almost impossible to, to live outside of the immediate urban area without a car. Which Although that's just as true in most of the big cities in the West Coast. Mm-hmm. Maybe not yeah. the Bay, but, but the Bay is an exception. Mm-hmm. And as far as what could connect places, I guess I would wonder, or I would ask this person, what's going on with all those people who have the land that you're talking about? Are they trying to make connections with people in urban areas? Um, it uh, I hear all the time from uh, anarchists my age in the Bay that they would love to do some kind of part urban, part rural existence, and it just ends up being this sort of fantasy that people talk about most of the time but I wonder what kind of outreach there is among the people who are doing that, what are they trying to do with the land Well they brought up that their example as sort of the reason why they don't do outreach 
they're too busy doing the land project. Mm -hmm. And yeah. yeah, yeah, and I think a lot of people don't know about these things. Like, I mean, that was totally new to me. And and this person saying, "Oh, you traveled around looking at, at different land project efforts," and I didn't have a fucking clue about these people. I mean, I would have loved to have checked that out. So, and let's move on. So the next uh, bit of listener feedback that we'll respond to, or that I'll respond to, comes from an anonymous source. This was a comment on Anarchist News. Um, there's a lot to say about it, so I want to be, uh, I want to be cautious about this, um, because it's a 500-word piece of feedback. One is, uh, one looks at it with certain assumptions. They they say the words. They're trying to be in good faith, or they don't say good faith, but they say that they, they don't hate me, and that they're trying to, to give me a solid critique. Um, uh, but they actually don't do that in the, in the context of the statement. There perhaps is a backstory that, that is more complete, but, um, uh, but basically the, the critique accuses me of, of considering myself to be a social scientist, it's, it half accuses me of busting people's anonymity, and it, um, uh, and basically it calls, it calls me a hipster, um, or, or someone who wants to be seen as in the know, um, uh, yeah, so, so I guess just to deal with those criticisms one at a time, actually I'm going to do the first one later. I'm going to start with the second one. I'm accused of not giving insurrectionary anarchists, and, and, and let me preface all this by saying the only episode that the feedback pertains to is episode one, um, and I think that that's probably the only episode that they listen to, since I think it's one of the only ones where we really talk about insurrectionary anarchism. Yeah, I think so. But, um, but it basically accuses me of not knowing what I'm talking about when it comes to insurrectionary anarchism, and... Uh, it makes the claim that there is a sort of thousand points of light of of insurrectionary anarchism that I that I did not make a fair case f for, um, and that perhaps is true, or at least at least the part that I didn't give the IA perspective a, its full shake. But it's not. I don't think it's that tr true to say that I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, what I was attempting to refer to, and, and again, I didn't re-listen to the episode to to clarify myself before before responding to this, but I, I do feel like what I was trying to talk about was the context in which insurrectionary anarchism is doing its thinking and ex it's expressing itself. And since I'm so involved in anarchist media projects, it would be hard to say that I'm unaware of that um, of the context in which IA is expressing itself. And, and especially... Um, given the the other accusations that are made against me in the context of this criticism which specifically that I that I give up too much information so I'm both accused of not knowing what I'm talking about and giving up too in, too much information but and 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 I definitely would apologize if I if I give up people's legal or or you know quasi legal names but I, which I, I feel like I do a good job of avoiding that but but and 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 sacrifice clarity to do it but in the context of IA, the the, polit the political program that's being expressed within the context of the of the town that I live in, which we'll just loosely call the Bay Area, 
within the context of the Bay Area, there is in fact a sort of post-insurrectionary anarchist perspective that looks a lot more like militant radicalism from the 70s than it looks like something informed by the Italian experience of the 80s. And so I, I just think that it's like that's there, there perhaps are people who are, who are holding on to the pure Italian flavor of IA or holding on to the you know, French parsed through uh, the U.S. version of insurrectionary anarchism. Um, and perhaps there are a thousand different flavors in North America that I don't know about, but I highly doubt it. And if there are, they have not let the outside world know about what they're doing. Did you have something you wanted to say? Well, yeah, I was going to say part of the comments that you were making also were you actually, if I'm remembering correctly, cited that the criticism that you have is shared by Bonanno, who had said that the American interpretation had had deviated in a way that he saw as negative. And the other part is that some of those comments are actually coming from a book that was published by LBC by a North American insurrectionary anarchist. Correct me if I'm wrong. So yeah, I mean, all that say that it's it's just sort of spec- hipster speculation doesn't seem fair at all. Yeah, I mean, I, I really try not to to refer to experts when mm-hmm. I when sure, I'm, when sure. I'm uh, saying what I'm trying to say, but there's plenty of of uh, context here. Some of some of which is published in LBC books, which I'm not trying to sell you. Um, uh, s- some of some of this context comes from my personal experience and and the altercations I've had within the context of the Bay, and and a lot of it is is what I see anonymous people talking about on the internet when these issues come up. Um, so, again, I'm responding sort of in good faith to a criticism that that actually didn't have nearly as much context as I'm giving right now in talking about these, these sets of issues. Uh, the only sort of specific uh, detail that's mentioned is the fact that in, the, uh, in some of our reprints of Elephant Edition books, uh, one of the covers um, or in uh, include balaclavas and AK-47s, and while I don't love uh, those covers or, or or the content of those covers, the artist who produced those covers for us, I feel like they absolutely did that work in good faith, and I think that they're very attractive covers. And I just, I just don't think that it's. Um, <laughs> I, I, Perhaps it's a fair criticism of me that I publish these books, but the the dozen or so copies that we have sold um, bespeaks the value of the marketing, which is, I assume, what the what the uh, mischaracterization uh, assumes. And then finally, um, the social scientist question. Um, well, that that's an interesting. Again, it's an unsubstantiated accusation, and so so I, I can't. I'm not going to stretch too far to to jump in front of the bullet of it, but I do think that it's an interesting uh, uh, accusation to make when part of my life work has been trying to take ideas out of the academy, and you know I really see a lot of what I try to do is to is to create a hostile tension with academics who are doing social studies type work, and so I so I I guess I'll take it as a fair criticism that you know perhaps I. By, by touching those people and by, by using some of the same references that they use, that I am taking a risk, and I, I, I hear that. But, um, but there, there does seem to me to, me to be a, a, serious con- a serious concern that I have 
which is that basically accusing anyone who sort of thinks or knows about a topic as as sort of being tarred with the same brush as an academic, that that um, is the sort of reason why people accuse anarchists of being anti-intellectual. And so I'm, I really am curious as to... It, probably in the perspective of the author of this criticism, speaking publicly about anarchist topics is, is the forbidden act. And that if you do that in an analytical or a discursive way, then you're going to be accused of being an academic, full stop. And so there, there doesn't need to be any fill-in because it's self-evident. But from my perspective, it's not self-evident. I think that anarchist ideas should be talked about out loud, in the open, you know. Um, and uh, and I, I don't think that there's actually incriminating information in, in this context. Or if there is, there is in any published material and... We should quietly just, you know, sink back to the earth as fast as possible. Nothing else you want to say? Um, there, there's more to go into in terms of, from my perspective, I see this piece as a hit piece coming at me from a, from a, a flavor of insurrectionary anarchism um, that that does have some sort of puritanical standards, especially when it comes to the public publicity of insurrectionary anarchism. And for, for me here, especially in the North American context, I feel like there's an uncomfortable tension, and I'll try to put it simply. On the one hand, the ultimate goal of IA tactics should be to express themselves so self-evidently to the people who are exposed to them, i.e. the people, that the people pick up these tactics, and because they share the, the same um, uh, hostilities that IA... Uh, uh, have they, they pick up these tactics and they do them themselves so, that, so the quintessential example would be in the European context attacking ATM machines there have been ATM machines attacked in North America but mostly they're of the smash and grab ATM machine hoping to crack it open variety not of the graffiti or, or uh, incendiary device um, with the hopes of ending the life of the ATM machine on the other hand, that isn't a successful tactic in the North American context. In other words, that don't sign your name. We live in a media-rich environment. People expect to, 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 to consume riot porn. And many uh, insurrectionary anarchists would like to provide that uh, that porn. And, um, uh, and so that means that the attitude that an insurrectionary anarchist of this tendency has is about publicizing what they do at all. Since I primarily do pub publicizing activities, mostly driven by other people's content, um, uh, that s puts me in this interesting tension of sort of like evaluating actions at the same time that I recognize that the terms of the actions are sort of muddied and ambivalent. I've sort of lost my train of thought, but the but the the main the main gist that I'm getting at is that um, this is not a truth statement substantiated by anything that I would call facts. It is instead a political statement that says, "I wish you would stop your project because for some reason you doing your project interferes with me doing my project," and I'm not sure I accept that that claim, but it's but it's you know one worth saying out loud. Oh, and I'm going to repeat one line that was said in it, which I think was the strongest line. 
Criticizing actions, analyzing communiques, and discussing in a constructive and supportive way would be refreshing and interesting. But talking like a condemning hipster who think, thinks he has all the right ideas about things you are not part of and distant from is another. And um, I guess pot, meat, kettle. So when Crime Think came through town... The- Sorry, this is the theme of this week is revolution. <laughs> talk about revolution through the lens of the essay Fighting on the New Terrain by Crime Think. Right. And so with that pre-framing out of the way, I'm going to do some post-framing, which was that when they came through town, this piece came up several times in the course of our conversations, and they emphasized that this was the theoretical piece about strategy. What does it mean to be an anarchist? What should anarchists be engaging in? And so we did a reading of fighting on the new terrain so that we could discuss it and then later we're just going to seg into talking about revolution more generally and so there are definitely things to appreciate in this piece and I want to start by talking about that which so they talked about how they have departed from their prior orientation which was very much about the lifestyle and the individual seizure of joy as we've talked about in previous episodes and part of how they explain that departure from that stance is that capitalism or civilization, whatever you'd like to call it, has recuperated certain aspects of that lifestyle and made them bolster and support capitalism. And so part of that being that the idea of dropping out is now has now, according to them, in a strange way become almost a mandatory mandatory thing through mass unemployment. And so what might have at one time been a deviation from and liberation from middle class lifestyles and values has now become sort of our common currency. And they also talk about how the DIY ethic and the idea of doing things in a non-monetized way has also been recuperated. And I generally find myself agreeing with this. Where I start to take issue is a few times in the piece it's emphasized that uh, they maintain, in spite of their departures, a commitment to the idea that an unmediated life and a new way of living is what is going to bring out anarchism. I like that. It has a lot of aesthetic resonance for me. I agree that a profound change in what it means to be a human and have a human life is something that we need. As we talked about, I think it was at the end of episode 8, 
which was supposed to be Indigeneity One, and we were talking about a, a big change in what it means to have a human-sized life, what it means to be an actor on the stage of history. However, I don't see that actually coming across in what Crime Think here and elsewhere talks about the role of the anarchist being. Because they say, toward the end of the piece, quote, our enemies to the right have already mobilized their reaction to the era of globalization and decentralization. We can see this from the Tea Party in the U.S. to nationalist movements throughout Europe and religious fundamentalists worldwide. While Western Europe has agglomerated into the European Union, Eastern Europe has been balkanized into dozens of nation-states, teeming with fascists eager to capitalize on popular discontent. Religious fundamentalism is a comparatively recent phenomenon in the Middle East, having taken hold in the wake of failed secular national liberation movements as an exaggerated reaction to Western cultural imperialism. If we permit proponents of hierarchy to monopolize opposition to the prevailing order, anarchists will simply disappear from the stage of history. And so in that kind of description, to me it seems to highlight, double down on the idea that anarchists need to be national, if not global, actors. I mean, when you talk about the European Union, nationalist movements, religious fundamentalism, I mean, these are still, these are massive ideas. These are whole cultures battling each other on the historical battlefield and to say basically these are the bad guys and if we don't do anything as the good guys the bad guys are going to win. You're positioning anarchists and anarchism on the same level as religious fundamentalism, as national movements and so to me there's nothing there about a, a, a whole new way of living and a life of unmediated joy. It sounds like a, a life of operating as a, as a larger-than-life representation. And there's an argument there. I'm not saying that there's no argument to be had. I'm saying that that argument is familiar to me. It's one that I'm used to hearing, and I don't see any kind of residue that they're claiming of it's actually about a, a new way of living. Yeah, I, I really didn't get that as a, as a resonant goal of the piece. For me, I, the, the goal of the piece to me feels like... Um, I'm also going to read from the Fighting on a New Terrain piece. I, I, just, I do want to jump in and say that, to me, that did feel like a, a framing point in the piece, because they put that at the beginning and the end of saying, this is, you know, our old thing was to say anarchism has to be a new way of living, and then at the end they say, we still believe... Um, despite everything, we stand by our initial hunch that it will take a new way of living to bring about such a situation. And then later on they say, there was one demand in Days of War, Nights of Love that could not be realized in any form under capitalism, the idea that unmediated life could become intense and joyous. And those seem like totally different arguments to me. On the one hand saying that those things I just quoted, and on the other hand saying, if we don't jump in and seize the reins, the fascists are going to do that. Okay, yeah, I mean, so, so for me, what felt like the driving point, right near the end, this will demand a lot from each of us, i.e. this revolutionary project that we're all mm -hmm. enjoined to. 10,000 anarchists willing to go to the same links as Enric Durand, who basically stole a bunch of money. The patron saint of debt defaulters could constitute a real force seizing resources with which to establish alternate infrastructures and setting up a public example of disobedience that could spread far and wide. 
This would bring dropping out up to date for the new era. It's terrifying to imagine going to such lengths, but in a collapsing world, terror waits ahead whether we choose it or not. Everyone who has participated in a black block knows it's safest in the front. Double or nothing. Um, and so for me, this just feels like that the authors haven't changed a whit from their hardcore backgrounds. Um, these sort of turns of phrase, double like or nothing. Take it to the max. Yeah, that, that, you know, we, in the past, we argued for fighting 100%. Now, we should fight 110%. And, um, but, but more importantly, this idea that, that we basically need to be pure actors. And pure actors in the way that Enric Duran, who you know did this sort of very high profile, and somewhat recently, I think the 2000s yeah, so in just, France or Spain. Just to give a quick explanation for those who might not know, he took out a number of large loans uh, all all at once or in a short time period, which I'm kind of wondering how he was able to get away with, and then basically scurried off with this. I think it was hundreds of thousands of of U.S. equivalent dollars. Um, and then publicized it, saying, you know, "I did this for radical reasons." And Anyways, the the point be, being that I, I feel like that there's maybe let, let's sort of sketch out a. Now that we have three points, we can sketch out an area that they're trying to uh, uh, have the project be contained within. I don't understand what that area is, but more importantly, I don't. I'm not convinced on any of these points. Like from the argument that they're making. I, I'm i of the, of the... Well, outside of crime think, I don't feel like they... They are saying sort of what a lot of people are saying in, in this time period. Go 110%. Um, Social instability is here, and it's going to increase, mm-hmm. if not at least stay at the same level. And that this is the time... And that if we sit on the sidelines, it'll be someone else's time. I'm trying to find what year they published it in because... 2012? Because I think, I think. that in 2015, they sound crazy. What what they basically said in 2012, and probably meant to say in 2009. Mm-hmm. So they were three years later saying it, then, they, then, their anal- then their analysis concluded, and now three years later, you know, more or less, no one's talking about crisis. Mm-hmm. People might say that there's a crisis coming, but but a lot of the sort of autonomous rhetoric around crisis capitalism, I think, has fallen on the wayside. And and well, okay, but that was definitely a theme of the of the to change everything tour was to talk about the that there is crisis in Eastern Europe, no? But are you talking about in the North American context? No one's talking about crisis? in North America, in the UK, mm-hmm. in in uh, outside of China, Asia, you know, people. Like, in other words, this is the closest thing to a bubble we're going to get for the next 10 years. I mean, like, if, if this mm. isn't a, a high point where there's nearly full employment in North America, you know, blah, 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 mm-hmm. I don't know what is. Sure. In other words, the, this is a, a sort of concern that I have with a lot of radical po- political themes that sort of say the crisis is, is growing, ignoring the fact that today, compared to 2012, the crisis, the crisis isn't, is better. Or it, Things are improved. Yeah. Well, again, I'm not for this improvement. We're sure. talking about the. We're talking about if you're going to talk about economic policy and economic conditions as being what you're talking about when you talk about the crisis, mm-hmm. then 
th those conditions have improved. Yeah, lower employment, electoral optimism. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. and and a lot of the, um, and so th so there's sort of a tongue in your mouth when you when you make a lot of this sort of like now is the time sort of comments because I'm not sure that 2015 is the time in the way that 2012 was the time or even more so 2009, but the kind of mass uh, or collective action, using their terms, that uh, I just don't see it form formulating because by and large some version of the middle class is sated today. Mm. Yeah, and I think to be fair to some people who might find this persuasive, what they would jump in and say is, look at the race riots, look at the police brutality, mm -hmm. this is, maybe it's not economic crisis, but it's social crisis, and that that's deepening, and I, I think it was even, I think it was even part of the talk, I've heard this kind of line of argument so many times, I'm, I might be conflating it with something else, but they would, were saying that um, tactics were being transmitted from riot to riot, and that therefore there's uh, a kind of mass awareness of what's going on and a willing to to step up the intensity and confrontation of the riots each time. And so that would be their evidence of, look, here's my line graph and it's going up. Yeah, and, and you know, for me, while I feel like that argument is fair, and if you're looking at the world through the eyes of a revolutionary, then, then that's going to be how you're going to talk about it. Mm -hmm. The other way you could say the exact same things is that Instagram has become very popular mm -hmm. and many people use Instagram. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't sound nearly as sort of politically effective, mm -hmm. but I believe is equally true. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but the reason that we're talking about revolution this, this week and, the, and why fighting on the new terrain brings up a lot of uh, these issues is because at the end of the, the last episode, we were talking about this idea of, of what does it mean to try to have a practice that, um, like a political practice, and for what goals does does one have in a, in a political practice? And so in the context of indigeneity, I was sort of making some personal statements and saying that there are other people who share these these some of these values, but more or less I was implying that it's a small group and it's and it, it, it doesn't necessarily have the bravery to express itself in a full-throated manner. And then full fighting on the new terrain is quite the opposite. It's unclear how many people fully subscribe to this document, but it's definitely not unclear how um, sure it is of itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's the absolutely the tenor of the to change everything is to say this is, not only is this a large number of anarchists relatively in the North American context, but that it is a, there's some sort of loose global consensus on this is the document, this is our, here are the problems, here's the analysis, and um, it feels very confident to me. I mean, I imagine if I were, if this were one of the first documents I came across, I would think, oh, wow, okay, this shit's going on in all these different dimensions, but... Um, I, I don't know, I, I maintain, I, I guess I just want to emphasize it one more time since you didn't seem to, to pick up the, the same kind of message. For me, to me, the, the thing that it screams is internal contradiction. The, the beginning, middle, and end don't all match up, and that's what's disturbing to me. And I mean, it, it, especially to call it new terrain and then say at the same time, but we're sticking to our old idea of a new way of living, it just doesn't add up to me. Mm. Yeah, I, I don't think that, I really didn't, get that out of it. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like what what I heard them say 
was we thought a new way of living was enough mm-hmm. just amongst ourselves. Sure. N- now that capitalism has done what it does, sure. we think that this new way of living has to be called something more like... They never sort of use the word revolution, but... Well, no, they say we, we went from the individual to the collective. Right. Yeah. And uh, But I just don't see how... how wh- to me, the most concrete things you could get out of it is insert yourself into social struggles. I, I don't see how that's a new way of living for the collective. It sounds like a, a, more of the same. Hmm. Yeah, again, but for me, that isn't the flaw. The, mm-hmm. the flaw has is more in, in this uh, quotation that's earlier in the document. As we later argued in Rolling Thunder 5, resistance is the motor of history. It drives social, political, and technological developments forcing the prevailing order to innovate constantly in order to outflank or absorb opposition. Thus, we can contribute to tremendous transformation without ever achieving our object. Yeah. This, uh, this, the hubris of saying that resistance, i.e. what we do, is the motor of history, something bigger than us and bigger than capitalism, um, is jaw-dropping. I could tentatively agree to something more tentative along the lines of resistance is a motor yeah. of history, or... I mean, to me it sounds like you're saying we're the pathogen, there's the immune system, therefore we drive the whole organism. That just doesn't follow. Yeah. Up. Or, or to put it strictly nihilistically, if resistance is the motor of history, just stop. <laughs> <laughs> like, stop, and, like, let's stop the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's, just, it's, it's a strange analogy on many levels. <laughs> like, Jesus Christ, we're killing ourselves! <laughs> anyway, so let's uh, let's talk about the, the theme in general, rather than just fighting on the new terrain. Sure. Yeah, I wanted to kick things off by saying that, I mean, the, the mere term revolution, just etymologically and, and its broader use, is totally tied to the idea of progress. And I think a common anarchist criticism that I just want to touch on is that we are embedded from birth with the idea that this is how things work. We, of course, are familiar with narratives of scientific and social progress, the idea that the human species becomes smarter, better, society is improving. But then even on the individual level, we're inculcated in, certainly in North America and the dominant culture in general, that an individual's life is a story of progress. One ages, one uh, hopes to gain knowledge, skill, to go through school, to the job, to becoming a proper person as an adult. And even, I would say, on the organismal level, there's a common misunderstanding that is not part of today's scientific canon, but was until quite recently, and is still often misinterpreted, that the that evolution is a story of progress. And even now there's still debate over the meaning of uh, the fact that organisms seem to become more complex with time. And so we have this idea that the, the culture, the world on a certain level, and then the individual in their own life story is progressing. And many radicals then are bewitched by this idea, and we have various radical analyses that tell a very similar story that any kind of dialectical narrative, of course, is one of progress. I mean, the the quote even from Fighting on the New Terrain just now was 
the idea, right, that the resistance is pushing things along, and even if it is a, a kind of recuperation, there's still ground is moving beneath history, right? And um, I think you see this everywhere. I think you see it even in in uh, ostensibly anti-left, or even you might go so far as to say anti-dialectical analyses of our situation by radicals, that even you have um, this idea that maybe we're doing things for life in general, for the organic, and that that life as a whole acts in a progressive way to stabilize ecosystems, to increase the diversity of life ways that can happen. And so I think even those who want to very much disassociate themselves from the idea of revolution need to re-examine a lot of the time how much, how deep this kind of thinking has gone, that there is going to be an event that is more or less cataclysmic, that is more or less transformative. And as we keep going, I want to talk about, I think, different psychological motivations for this, that the individual longs to dissolve themselves into a cataclysmic event. Hmm. So you ultimately are seeing this conversation as I guess I would usually frame it as being a Christian what's a eschatology. eschatology, Eschatological. (laughs) Um, I think that is the easiest way to look at it. And they're using evolution as a a way to secularize the same conversation. Yes. I think it's it's very easy to talk about it in, in a Christian way, and I think that's something that we can touch on a bit, but that even those who um, want to shed that kind of baggage, I think are st- it's still very easy to get caught up in thinking that way. I guess just to, to play fair with... Okay. When I became a radical, and when most people became radicals, they bought into a, a some version of this situationist uh, graffiti that says... In a society that has abolished all adventure, the only adventure left is to abolish that society. Very charismatic. It's a beautiful uh, slogan. Yeah. And um, and so it's definitely how I describe my project for the first 10 years that I was a, an mm-hmm. anarchist. And and I love that idea that the that the difference between, yeah, just whatever, all, the, all the, the boredom, all the insults that we give the modern era that sort of appears to resolve in a way that justifies what how crime think is thinking about their project today. Mm-hmm. And I and I'm, my guess is that they would point to this sort of a slogan as being an original sure. uh, totally. document also. So how does this fall or not fall into that eschatology? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wanted to talk about the, the different motivations. I think there's a lot of very basically human desires that motivate this kind of analysis. <laughs> and I'm not sure what order to go in, but I guess for that one, so the society has abolished all adventure. I'm bored. I'm not happy with most of my social relationships. I don't see a future for myself that isn't having a, a more or less boring job. So I'm, I come across that quote and say, yeah, fuck yeah. And I think there is a kind of thanatos, right? A death urge that goes into that because you look at yourself or you represent yourself to yourself and say, I'm not all the things I want to be. I feel like I could be 
this creative person who has healthy relationships and wakes up every day full of joy and ready to run out of the bedroom. And instead, I have none of these things. And so there's, I think, a desire for self-annihilation through a total transformation of the existent. And this is kind of a silly person to be bringing up because he's totally this liberal guy, but there's this psychologist, Terence Rayal, who talks about depression, and his specialty is specifically depression in men, and talks about one of the ways to escape from that is through dissolution or oceanic bliss. So the desire to dissolve oneself into something bigger. And he talks about how that can happen through religion. It can happen through the idolization of a ostensibly perfect romantic partner. It can happen through um, a heavy ingestion of drugs to the point of you know, just feeling a bliss and the annihilation of the self. And I would say that it can, that the idea of revolution lends itself perfectly to this because it is uh, a total transformation it's a thing that you can push toward but never quite get at, and it tells a really satisfying account. I mean, an adventure of abolishing society, who that is not happy in their life doesn't think that that sounds fucking awesome. I mean, I when I reflect on that slogan, um, the capitalist imagination in the past 40 years has taken that instinct and incredibly has converted it to social media. Mm. Like when one, th there were some studies a few, a few years ago that basically said that depression is linked to social media consumption yeah. because you can, you see that the other people in your life are living these exciting lives mm -hmm. filled with you know pictures of their dinner and <laughs> <laughs> and the hiking trips they take and especially in the aggregate makes yeah. it seem like other people are living yeah. adventurous lives. Whereas yeah. you are not. And basically this social media becomes this way to oppress yourself with the experience of how unadventurous totally. your yeah. life is. Yeah. I think that's a fascinating phenomenon. Yeah. But don't lose uh, your momentum. And right. So I wanted to, to talk about other very human desires. Um, another one I would say absolutely is resentment. That revolution tells a tale about how the bad people are going to get what they deserve. And so it becomes very easy to say, sure, these these bad people, David Koch and you know Jerry Brown, are giving me all kinds of shit right now. However, the day is going to come of reckoning, and the meek will inherit the earth, and the bad people are going to be punished for being powerful and for being different from I am. Another uh, human desire, I would say, is the massifying impulse. So revolution is undergirded by this same kind of totalizing impulse that actually that you talked about in uh, this piece I keep bringing up of yours, the tort and indigenous anarchism, mm -hmm. yeah, the idea that if I do the good thing, other people will do it, and if they're not doing it, they sure as fuck should do it, and that I'm going to push my values outward in order to cope the entire landscape. That's a very satisfying story, again, for the same kind of person who's dissatisfied in their life. And I think the last way I would talk about it is the moral catharsis element that even if the day doesn't come, even if the bad people don't get what they deserve, even if no one takes up my values, even if I can't dissolve myself, at least I'm doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. I'm out there doing the good work. And so the cathartic release is that even if it never comes, I'll 
go to my grave saying, I did the hard work, I was the good person, and therefore I'm vindicated in the end. So I'm going to change the topic entirely. Okay. I feel like that's a, a quite complete, although succinct, criticism of revolutionists. Yeah. Many of Psychology. Our, yeah, yeah, many of our peers, many of the ones who sort of we feel like are acting like this, probably wouldn't call themselves revolutionaries. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I'm not sure exactly how they would orient themselves to this critique, but this idea that anarchism and even anarchist activity is not about revolution is not an entirely new idea. Yeah, sure. uh, A lot of the post-situationists in North America of the Hawking Bay sort of family of Taz people in the 80s and 90s uh, sort of feel like they vibe in a very different direction than this is. And, you know, what I call nihilist anarchism also sort of issues this whole baggage. Um, from your perspective, in thinking about how to res- respond sen- sensitively to these solid criticisms, what does a practice look like? That evades the things that I was describing? Yeah, I think... Or embraces them, interestingly. Yeah, sure. So I would think that... First, it would have to get away from the idea of deferment. So rather than it being about, I'm doing action X, which is good insofar as it links up eventually to the totalizing event. So rather than having the value of the action deferred, to have the value of the action in here in the performance of the action. Yeah, to make it imminent. (laughs) To imminentize the eschaton. (laughs) I mean, this is also, in the old days, this was called uh, uh, pie in the sky. The radicals always argued for pie in the sky. Mm. And that this was why, in our labor struggles, we fight for achievable demands so that we aren't always pie in the sky. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, in in a certain way, you could say a lot of what's wrong... I would say this doesn't exhaust it completely, but a lot of what's wrong with what I described is that it actually doesn't live up to the beautiful situationist quote at the beginning because a lot of the actions in themselves are not going to be adventurous, but are rather going to be deferred. Deferred pleasure, which I... I mean, if you, Or you could say delayed return, right? And you could say that that's a lot of what is wrong with the culture in general is that the reward is always deferred whether it's in the form of payment after performance and well that's a contentious point because because now it's changed with and and with one of the, one of the things that's the hallmark of your generation is that you're a bunch of selfish brats who mm-hmm. won't do anything unless you get rewarded immediately mm-hmm. or appreciated that's not a reward <laughs> <laughs> but yes it's true yeah. but, uh, my ability to appreciate is Less than, it should, less than it should be. Um, and... Fuck, I lost the third a little bit. This is why we shouldn't make jokes. <laughs> because we lose the point. Yeah, and I mean, uh, I think... Uh, you know, this is this is the, the kind of tired, bellamy thing to say, but I'm just going to say it anyway, because you know, I think it's important, is that a lot of this is about... Right, the dissolution of the actual life into the the grand reified thing, and so besides deferred value, I would also say it's 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 a phantasmization of what one is doing rather than a, a directly lived life. And so, is it possible to do that outside of a small f- nuclear family in in our context? 
Uh, is it possible to not? You're, you're talking about uh, being in, in groups the size of face-to-face relationships. Right. And that right, is obviously is... the opposite point of the uh, fighting on the new terrain point of being involved in collective struggle. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's difficult for me to give that straight up. And, I mean, obviously the orientation of my life is, is very much right now toward this direction of, of small face-to-face community and then and, and trying to have a, a, a more directly lived anarchy um, or something more like that. And so, and, you know, just to, to fully check myself here, a lot of what I was criticizing about the crime thing thing was to act on the grand stage, right? Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, I'm going to say at this juncture that I, I don't know, and my orientation right now is toward exploring the very much small-scale, face-to-face, directly-lived stuff and to see where that goes. And I have to say, my heart is still not exactly in the place of collective action. That feels corny to me. But to put it simply, even though this isn't entirely accurate, there's something in the anarchist space that to me feels worth fighting for in the context of this conversation because the anarchist space is one of the few spaces I've ever been in in my life where I can make certain shortcuts I can make assumptions about the person that I'm talking to, and I would like to live in a world where I can make those sorts of assumptions. And um, perhaps that's a great place to end this particular episode, and we can think about how to develop it uh, in future episodes, because I think that this question of how do we contrast the aspects that are undesirable in revolutionary thinking with something that resolves some of these contradictions... Sure. So maybe we will take up this issue more in a future episode. We've also had some um, desires expressed from people to to take up the imagination one more. Yeah, for sure. So I think we'll come back to that as well. So this is Aragorn. And this is Bellamy. Thank you for listening. You can email us at thebrilliant at thebrilliant.org. And I hope we will keep giving more messages. Thank you.